everyone and welcome to episode 561 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer's Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I have been reading a lot uh, lately because, well, I mean, that's what I do, but I'm also reading in order to try to get ahead because I'm going to Hawaii in a few weeks and I don't know, I actually find it very difficult to read while I'm traveling, especially if I'm traveling for work Um, and that's why I'm going to Hawaii for work Uh, and I find it difficult because, well, I'm busy traveling, right? Reading kind of just doesn't become part of my routine. So if I don't get ahead now when I'm, you know, in my normal environment, I'm going to be very behind when I get back from my travels and that knowledge while I'm away will just stress me out. So yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading to get ahead. I don't know about you, but I like reading the printed word, you know, like on hard copy books or Kindle, particularly when I'm reading fiction. However, I do love listening to audiobooks when it comes to nonfiction, in the car, when I'm painting late at night, sometimes when I'm in my studio and so on. And it's funny how a narrator can sometimes make or break a book, right? Occasionally, I will admit, I have returned books when I haven't been able to bear the narrator for whatever reason, and there was no way I was going to commit the next 10 or however many hours listening to that voice. But for the first time the other day, there was a narrator who was just so good, I simply wanted to listen to any other audiobook they narrated. I mean, of course that happens with authors, right? Where you love a book so much that you want to read all of the other books or some of the other books read by, I mean, written by that author. But this was with a narrator because he just brought that book to life. Anyhow, I started going down that rabbit hole and I even found him on Instagram. But, you know, anyway, next time I want to use my Audible credits, I'm definitely going to look for him. I don't I don't think I care even what the book is about. He, I just know he's going to make it amazing. And of course, when I refer to Audible credits, I really love the system that they've got. Um, I'm on a subscription with Audible. You get a certain number of credits per month with your monthly payment, and you can use those credits to um, audiobooks. And it actually works out cheaper, in my opinion. So I like that system. Now let's move on to my writing tip this week. When creating your characters, you need to know a lot more about them than you actually share in your story, than what's on the page, right? And one, because you really need to get to know them intimately if you want them to come to life. Now, one way to keep track of all that information is in mood boards. And one of the best ways to do that is with good old Pinterest, right? Yes, it's not just for home decorating or wedding planning or pictures of your cats, So if by some chance you don't know what Pinterest is, um, which I doubt, but anyway, you never know, it's a site that allows you to collect images from all over the internet. On your character's Pinterest board, you can have images of maybe their favorite outfits. So imagine it's their Pinterest board, right? You know, where they live, what they like to eat, their dream holiday, maybe their favorite, favorite bar or picnic spot, anything at all that you can think of. Or you can create a board for a specific event in your story. For example, maybe it's an important party or social gathering or even a natural disaster. I think that this is a great tool for helping you 
to see, to clearly see and understand your characters and to really see the settings and the situations, especially if you're a visual person. But just remember that you don't want to to transpose everything over the page, right? Even the most diehard reader of, you know, Regency romance or sci-fi doesn't want to read every agonizing detail about what characters are wearing or eating. So definitely go nuts on your Pinterest board and get loads and loads of rich detail. But remember that most of that information is actually for you. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of The Chasm by Bronwyn Hall. You may remember Bronwyn Hall because I interviewed her in episode 503 when she wrote her debut novel, uh, Gone to Ground. And this is her second novel, The Chasm. All right, here is the blurb. Andy King knew she should never return to Stonefield. Ten years ago, her boyfriend, Will Hoffman, disappeared without a trace, and most people in the town thought she was to blame. But a decade is a long time to be homesick, and she isn't technically going back there, only to Taplin, a small town in the neighbouring valley, far enough away from Stonefield she can stay under the radar, but close enough to the mountains that she can feel their pulse and breathe their special brand of oxygen. And it's only for four weeks after all. But Andy didn't bargain on running into those who are still looking for Will, the ones who have the most to lose if he's ever found. Andy will go to her grave before she reveals what had happened back then. But when she realises that those same people have other secrets hidden in the mountains, it's clear she's once again in their way. And this time, sending her to her grave is exactly their intention. Ooh, okay. Sounds awesome. The Chasm by Bronwyn Hall. I have three copies to give away and entries close on the 25th of September. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. Remember, entries close 25th of September. But if you go to that URL in the future, that's writercenter.com.au slash win. There will be some other fabulous competition there for you to enter. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are because the word of the week this week is abstemious. Abstemious, that's A-B-S-T-E-M-I-O-U-S, abstemious. It means to be moderate or sparing in the use of food and drink or characterised by abstinence. So an example from Australian novelist Christina Stead in 1944 is, he was abstemious by habit, neither drinking, eating nor loving much. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Would you like to write a novel for young adults? Do you want to create gripping, enthralling stories for teenagers? The popularity of books for the young adult market has exploded in the last decade, becoming one of the most successful areas of the industry. But what is it exactly and who is it aimed at? And do you need special skills or knowledge to write for this sophisticated and complex readership? In the course Writing Young Adult Fiction, you'll discover the key elements of a young adult novel, understand why writing for teenagers is different, develop skills in character development and point of view, get up to date with the current state of young adult publishing, and much more. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash young adult. 
That's writerscentre.com.au slash youngadult. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Today I'm talking to Simon Higgins. His latest book is the young adult novel Dragons of Dusk and Dawn. It's his 16th published novel. He's been published with Penguin Random House, Pod Headline, Pop Fiction Press, Hachette and Pan Macmillan. Simon is a former police officer, prosecutor and private investigator specialising in murder cases. While working on his very last murder case, he wrote the young adult serial killer thriller, Dr. Id. He has since written the Thunderfish series, the Tomodachi series, the Moonshadow series and more. Thanks so much for joining us today, Simon. My pleasure. I'm so keen to unpack your author journey with us today and, of course, to discuss your latest novel because you've been writing for a very long time and Mm. now you're trying a few different things which I think is great as well but first the reason that we're chatting today is that you have a new novel out which is very exciting um Dragons of Dusk and Dawn so for those people who haven't got a copy yet can you tell us what it's about sure um Dragons of Dusk and Dawn is a historical adventure and Although when you write, as you know, you always have to kind of categorise for publishers, for the reading public. So I'm calling it a young adult novel, but it's kind of written in a way that adults won't find it in any way a kiddie story. The idea behind it is an alternate history premise. I've been living in China now for almost 10 years and immersing myself in the traditional culture, as you can probably see from what I'm wearing and from the Buddhist Heart Sutra hanging in a frame in the background on the wall. So I came up with the idea that I was fascinated with how during the Tang Dynasty, which was the most advanced dynasty of the Dark Ages, far ahead of Western culture at the time, with the biggest city in the world with ambassadors from multiple countries living in it. That was the city of Chang'an, which is now Xi'an in China where the famous terracotta warriors are. What if explorers from that capital were sent out by the emperor, by the son of heaven, to go as far west as man had ever gone in their knowledge and to explore, survey, record languages? And what happens if that happens and they run into the Vikings who are in the throes of attacking a Christian kingdom? Now, when I researched this historically, I realised this totally could have happened. So uh, that's the premise of the story. So lots of action, wonder, romance, three different cultures colliding. Now, what an exciting premise. So clever. What sparked it? It was actually triggered weirdly in 2018 by a DNA test. I, I knew that my family came from a very unusual background Both my parents were born and raised in India as part of the British Raj. Um, We lived in Africa. My parents had lived in Southeast Asia. They spoke a smattering of languages. And then we originally being supposedly an English family also had Irish, Scottish, French um, roots. I was really curious. I just had this feeling there had to be an explanation for why I was always so drawn to two cultures, which I didn't know I had a connection with. One was Norse culture, the Scandian culture. So, you know, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, 
Iceland, the Viking world, and the other was East Asia. And I'd been obsessed with these since I was a teenager. And it's part of the reason I got into martial arts. So I had the DNA test in 2018, and you could have knocked me over with a feather when I got the results. And it said that I have definitely both Viking and Asian DNA, ancient, from ancient times. So that was it. I thought, I have to write this out. I have to kind of deal with this side of myself in storytelling. That's, that's how I've learned to kind of deal with most things. Um, so I thought about it deeply and I thought about the two sides of myself. There is the kind of the, the, the cunning acquisitional Viking side. And there's also the very methodical scholarly trying to pursue core values and trying to understand things and refine them in a deep way, which is very East Asian. So I thought, okay, let's have a character born out of those two essences and let's put them head to head and their cultures head to head. And that's how it all started. I love it. So this is book number, what, 15, 16? What, 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 what number are we up to now? <laughs> this will be my 16th published novel and I've got a couple more in the wings that I'm working on. I'm a bit of a workaholic when it <laughs> comes to storytelling. I, I'm the wrong person to ask um, how do you deal with writer's block I have the opposite problem. I have a filtration problem. I have so many ideas all the time and so many things from history, from real life, from happenstances stimulate me. And then I want to do a short story or a book about that. And I've already calculated. I, I just don't simply have enough life years ahead. So <laughs> I have to be selective. And that's my problem. What, what do I write? What do I leave alone? Now, this novel is for young adults. Would you say that's your sweet spot in terms of the age group that you like to write for or do you like writing for any age? Well, it's a, it's a funny thing, that whole question. It raises the publishing question of categories. And, you know, when I was very young, my mother was the wonderful influence who got me reading very early on. And by the time I was 10 years old, I was reading full-length adult airport novels. I was reading all the classics and all the classic adventure stories. So I kind of grew up cutting my teeth on Alexandre Dumas, and I loved his work so much. I, I went to his grave in Paris to pay my respects. Um, I also loved, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson and Sir Walter Scott and Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. And I found that the tone that most of those writers took was very, very friendly for teenagers, but also adults. And I don't really think of it as YA or adult or crossover. This is just my idea of storytelling. So I'm humbly following in, in that tradition um, because I kind of write the books I wish had existed when I was a boy so I could read them too. That's part of the mission. <laughs> So let's go back because, as you say, this is your 16th novel with more to come, but you actually started life off, well, your career before that was in the police. Um, yes. Talk to me about why you chose that career and then what got you writing? It's a great question. Um, well, my family was military. My father was a major in the British Army. My mother at one stage was a nurse during World War II, nursing wounded soldiers coming back from the fronts. Um, 
My father's father was a soldier. He died from wounds he sustained in World War One. And, and there's a genealogist in our family who, from Ireland, who tells me that I come from a very long line of professional soldiers and before that battlefield knights. And I was very honored when I took my wife on our honeymoon to England and we went into Windsor Castle and on the ceiling of one particular room were all the coats of arms of families who had gone from being peasants to being knights by earning it on the battlefield. They'd been knighted for valor. And there was the O'Higgins crest with the three castles and the dragon rampant, or griffin rampant holding a sword. So um, my, my wife, who's Chinese, immediately said, we have to get a fridge magnet of that, which they were selling in the, in the gift shop in Windsor Castle, which is delightful. It's in my blood, I guess, being military or paramilitary or something. And, and even though I was very into reading and writing stories and writing graphic novels as a teenager, when I got into my late 20s, I just felt this pull. It's, you know, I'm a real believer in, in we are more than the sum of our parts, as Aristotle said, but, <clears throat> excuse me, those parts are compelling. You know, the, the elements in us, often we find out we have ancestors who were like us. So uh, I, I just, I had to get in a uniform. And I also wanted some personal adventure and some personal challenge. So eight and a half years in the South Australian Police Department, and then two years working as a private investigator in Adelaide on murder cases. Mm. Adelaide has been somewhat unfairly called the city of corpses because there've been a number of quite creative murders there. And uh, I used to joke with police officers I would meet from interstate, you know, you guys, like in Sydney, you just have these boring gangster shootouts. And, and in Melbourne, it's just a pretty straightforward kind of, you know, somebody gets stabbed or the neck gets broken. You want creative murders, you come to Adelaide. And you get, you know, bodies in vats of acid in the bank up north in Snowtown and bodies in the freezer on Green Hill Road and the, near the city centre and all kinds of weird stuff connected with witchcraft and, uh, you know, death video cults. So... After 10 years immersed in that dark energy, it started to get to me. And I was experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was lucky that because I'd been a long-term martial arts student, I never got really physically hurt. I got some injuries, but they were pretty minor. Um, most of the time I could manage anybody who attacked me without even going for a gun. And that's not because I'm, you know, Bruce Lee, it's a credit to my teachers. But Internally, I was taking a lot of damage. And uh, at one stage, now this sounds like something out of a Hollywood movie. A lot of my life sounds way too much like a Hollywood movie, but this really happened. And I never say anything I can't prove. Uh, it's, it's an old cop thing. So at one stage, I had a house in the Adelaide Hills, and I got a phone call at night to say that some criminals had escaped from a jail done a ram raid and seized a number of guns. And apparently they told the other inmates before they escaped that they were going to find a particular police officer and kill them. And I was getting this phone call because they were on my rural property. So I might be the target. And this was when I had been a prosecutor for two years and I'd sent a lot of people to jail, uh, very deservingly. 
Um, and in many cases, people that deserve to go to jail got out of it because they had very high level legal counsel. But a helicopter began to hover over my house and I had to phone all my neighbors, tell them to turn off the lights, lie down on the floor. There could be a gunfight. Uh, I had to arm myself. My next door neighbor, may all the gods old and new bless him, said, I'm not going to watch this happen. He said, I used to be a professional buffalo shooter in the Northern Territory. I'll meet you at the fence line with my gun. <clears throat> and the two of us walked the wire went out into the night looking for these criminals with a helicopter buzzing us with a night sun hanging underneath it. I mean, I said afterwards, this is way too diehard for me. You know, I, I, I like to be the thinking man's cop, not the guy that ends up, you know, in the burning building in the, in the singlet with the gunfights. And yeah, so that was it. I'd had enough. I, I tried being a private eye because mostly I was looking at evidence. But because I was looking at very grisly evidence, I, I, I then went from being a character in an action movie to being a character in a Thomas Harris novel, you know, the kind of the very stressed out FBI profiler type, male or female, Will Graham or Clarice Starling, who, who really shouldn't be doing this because they're too empathetic. So after two years, I, I felt myself slowly, inch by inch, starting to go mad. And I thought, look, I've always known creativity heals. And it doesn't have to be the most overt kind of creativity, but what I would say to anyone with a first responder background or even trauma in their own life, if they have been, I don't like the word victim, but if they have been the victim of a crime, look at creativity as a way of healing yourself. It's very powerful. So I took all that dark energy and I tried to flip it on its head and during my very last real life murder case that I was working on as a barrister's investigator. So I was now working for the defense. I was now testing the police case to see if the bad guy was the right bad guy. Um, I wrote Dr. Id in 1998, which again was for young adults and adults. And it's a serial killer thriller about a, a killer who uses the internet to select his victims. And in 1998, this was a very fresh topic. This was quite new. In those days, the internet was not like it is today. I mean, we, we could quite possibly be under surveillance now from cyber cops as we're talking. There's a lot of policing on the internet, both algorithmic and AI and human. And, and frankly, there needs to be. But in 1998, the internet was the wild west. And there were only hundreds of websites, not hundreds of thousands or millions of them. There were bulletin boards and there were online games that were mostly text games. And there's really little evidence that someone who had good tech capabilities couldn't have infiltrated those games and used them to get people to really expose themselves. So that was the premise of that idea. And, uh, as I wrote the book, I, I felt myself connecting with the kind of energy I had as a teenager, which was wholesome and stepping back from the horror and starting to put the horror in a perspective. And, uh, you know, frankly, that book saved my life. And I, I, I finished it and I thought, you know, it saved me. I love it. But no one's going to publish it. It's I mean, it's for teenagers and it's about a serial killer. Come on. You know, the Guardians, the political correctness, well, I was wrong. 
uh, Random House and Penguin, who were at that stage separate publishers, both wanted it. And so I sat down with them and I found out which publisher, which was Mark McLeod from um, Random House, he was the one who wanted to make the least changes and he wanted to take a gamble with me. And he said to me, this is gonna do one of two things. This is gonna kill your career dead on the ground before it starts because people are gonna think you shouldn't be putting out stories like this for the young, or it's gonna majorly put you on the map. And after this, you'll probably need to write crime fiction for a while, but then you can branch out and write anything you want. And he turned out to be right, it was option B. So I, I'm eternally grateful. And it was a save, it was a big save. If I'd stayed in that environment, I think I'd be talking to you now um, with a lovely white jacket on with extra long sleeves tied around the back. Okay, so you wrote Dr. Id, who gets picked up, you know, by by Random House um, with demand from also another publisher. Um, but at what point did you think, I'm actually going to give up that career, my previous career, and focus on writing? Once I got the signals uh, of interest from the publishers, I thought, okay, this is it. I need to find some other way to make a living. Um, for a while, I'm going to need a day job. Uh, but it's not going to be law enforcement connected. So I did a really quite crazy thing. Um, I, I took my payout from the police force and I took my final kind of monetary compensation from employers. And I sat down with one of the wisest people I knew who actually was a writer, not a therapist. And, um, you know, that person was the great Gillian Rubenstein, alias Leanne Hearn who's a, a fabulous, you know, one of Australia's greatest creative talents. And in a lot of ways, she was my mentor. And she also shared my great fascination for East Asia. And she just, Gillian has this ability with her gentle wisdom to kind of give you a throwaway line, which sounds so casual, but actually it's miraculous if you follow it. She said to me, why don't you just chill out for a while and do something where there's the opposite of the burden of responsibility you've carried. So I left being a private detective, I surrendered my license, and I deliberately went out and got a job as Adelaide's oldest pizza delivery boy. Okay. <laughs> and I loved it. And I kept, I was editing Dr. Ed and refining it and developing it while I was doing this. And I was just in bliss because, you know, no one's, you know, when you knock on a door as a cop and the door opens, you're either there to take someone away by force, so it's very negative, very dreadful, or you're there with terrible news for that family. But no one feels that way about the pizza boy. You <laughs> knock on the door, the door opens, everyone starts cheering. And, you know, I had drunken people throwing their arms around me and going, you've saved me, I've got the munchies, man, give me the pizza. And people gave me tips and people invited me in. And I started to love humans again, which was really what I needed. So then I started to feel like I was making my way back from the dark side to the human race. And the creativity began to flow more and more. And finally, I moved from Adelaide to northern New South Wales to the beautiful green and leafy Tweed Valley. And uh, I was befriended by a number of published authors who lived on the Gold Coast and uh, in the Tweed who embraced me as part of their community. 
and that was it. It was like rebirth. So I did write some more crime thrillers, but now I was internally peaceful and I was just using my knowledge. Wow. Okay. So you have this turning point basically in your life and you are now editing Dr. Id, but then you are, I assume, thinking forward about, okay, what's my next novel? What was the, if there was any, strategy in terms of making the decisions on what to write about and how did you determine which, because you say you've got so many ideas, right, which one to go Mm. with? That's a wonderful question. And I think that's a very pertinent question for anyone emerging as a writer. I can only tell you how it works for me. And basically, there's always the temptation to simply write formula, but try and reboot the formula because that usually gets accepted and that usually gets published. I mean, look at movies. I mean, how many Batmans have we had? And yet, We get superhero reboots all the time, which actually work because you've got creative people going, let's put a different spin on this and let's make it up to date and all that stuff. So writers are always tempted to do that. But what I was always looking for was to get in the zone, to get in the place where I'm internally peaceful, I'm stimulated by something unusual. And that thing starts to build inside me like a, a totally believing energy. That's the trigger. That's the signal of what I should write. So after I wrote Dr. Id, then Cyber Cage and The Stalking Zone, which were crime thrillers with the same core characters. One day I was watching the news and there was this crazy little story about Athena Onassis, the the heir to her father's massive shipping and uh, real estate empire. And the photograph showed her surrounded by bodyguards. And there was this very intelligent, very soulful looking girl with sad eyes, surrounded by men from many different countries, all of whom were, to put it bluntly, the best of the best proven killers who who have now left the military and you hire them because they can keep you alive against anybody. And and I've worked with a lot of those men shoulder to shoulder and and women and, and yeah, I could recognize straight away they were expensive, they were the real deal. And I started thinking about this and I thought, you know, speaking of Batman, what would happen if someone like her had a reason to drop out of being this, you know, enforced celebrity and they had a cause? And I thought about it for a long time. And and one day I was sitting in my little study playing with my model submarines because I, I was a scuba diver as well. And I love deep diving and shipwreck diving. And I've always been obsessed with submarines. I, I think I'm a kind of a, I think I'm the budget spiritual brother to James Cameron with his love <laughs> of the sea and exploring, you know. So uh, I came up with this weird idea. A girl, something like Athena Onassis, witnesses a massacre of boat people trying to get to Australia to start a new life. And she goes into a deep depression and has a catharsis. And when she comes out of it, She starts reading obsessively the book that was the book her distant father used to read to her as a girl, the only comfort she got. And it was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. And she reinvents herself as the Captain Nemo of the 21st century. But she doesn't attack warships. She cripples pirate ships. And 
rescues refugees and she uses the people in her international team of bodyguards who have a naval background to become her crew. So when I started researching this book, I always spend about three months researching anything. I found out you can actually buy on the black market. And, and this is a bit scary. I actually found out how to do this for real. You can buy retired combat submarines from Russia, such as Kilo class submarines, which have anechoic tiles, which are really, really quiet. They're diesel electric, but they're very dangerous. You pay enough money, you can even get the torpedoes. So it is not in any way a ridiculous premise that a super rich individual, I mean, Elon Musk could do this. Elon Musk could have his own secret submarine. Maybe he does. Who knows? There's a book there for someone who wants to pick up that idea. I mean, he's helping out with the Ukraine war with drones. So who knows? So Kira Beaumont, the hero of the Thunderfish trilogy, was born. And again, what I found really interesting was I thought this is so nuts, this, this premise. I, I, I've done it again. I've gone over the top. How is this going to work? Then I got a call from my agent and she said there are two Hollywood studios really excited about Thunderfish. Uh, they're even talking about, now bear in mind this was in the year 2000, they, she said they're even talking about getting Liv Tyler to play Kira Beaumont. I said, if this happens, I will swim all the way to California just to meet Liv Tyler. You know, <laughs> I, I, I love her work and I think she's got great charisma. So like a lot of writers, the one that got away stories, this is the Thunderfish that got away. It didn't end up happening, but it gave me confidence in that internal golden thread that when something is pulling on it, I should follow it. So you know, what I would say to writers who are developing is try to get really close, even uncomfortably close to understanding your own instincts and test your instincts and, you know, be a little bit businesslike here because there's two sides to the craft. There's the very private personal craft, which is the joy of creating, you know, randomly and wildly and freely. And then there's the question of how many people do you want to read this? If you really want a big audience to read this, you've got to also be savvy and calculating and discriminating. And the first place you've got to be that is with you. You've got to know this instinct is a very valid one. This one, I got a bit excited. I got carried away. They say that when writers are producing their most amazing and groundbreaking work, their brain is producing theta waves in, in high amounts. And often that takes personal stimulation, like the way I was inspired for Dragons of Dusk and Dawn by realizing I have a connection to the Vikings. I have a connection to ancient East Asia. So that stimulated me to, in a way, relax and say, well, you know, I have a cultural claim to this. I can write about this with confidence. Nobody can ever get me on Facebook all the way from, you know, um, some Viking town I've never heard of in a field and abuse me in, in old Norse because I'm, I'm outside the cult. No, I'm, I'm in there too. So know your instincts, test your instincts. And the moment they're validated, trust them, trust them and run with them because this is how these crazy ideas emerge, which have formed the history of great literature. I mean, look at, you know, look at Kafka, 
metamorphosis, you know, the premise of his book, a guy comes home from work, goes to bed, and when he wakes up, he's turned into a giant grub, a giant caterpillar, and his family just goes, damn, and they just live with him and seem to accept it. And this is a book from history, and it doesn't make any sense, and it's crazy, but it's a classic. And mm -hmm. it, it actually triggered a new kind of hybrid of magic realism and, uh, and you know, kind of, well, the, the scholars are still arguing about how many genres it stimulated. So I say to writers, know yourself and know your enemy, which is the, the, the resistance wall in the market, and a thousand victories will be yours. And that's a quote from Sun Tzu, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, and it, it's applicable. This is great advice. Now, with the because you've been writing for such a long time and obviously very successfully because there's been so many books, um, there was obviously a transition period, you know, where you were getting that confidence, where you were being the uh, uh, Dougie the pizza boy. <laughs> At what point did you go, I don't need to be the pizza boy anymore. I've, I've, I've got it. I feel um, self-assured now. This is my full-time gig. I think that came when, as you say, I'd had a few, you know, runs on the board, a few wins, and then the industry kind of reeled me in. And, and this is what I would predict will happen, you know, to, to anyone listening to this who, who is taking comfort and, and rising and emerging. When you start to find your niche, um, the industry kind of really makes that clear for you and reels you in. Now, when I was a policeman, one of the things I did was I was also very community minded. So I would do school talks and I would go to lots of schools and I do the, you know, with little kids, I do the stranger danger thing with older kids. I do the look, here are the sensible reasons you shouldn't do drugs. I'm not saying it's not fun. Let's just talk about some case stories and, and try and, you know, kind of sell them on self-control and wisdom that way. So I became quite a polished public speaker, knowing how to operate an agenda and knowing how to be calm and also learning how to be funny uh, and relax and, and crack jokes and not in a self-conscious way. Once I had a few books published, the publishers said, okay, we're going to try you out at writers festivals. And my more honest publishers were really straight with me. They said, look, if you suck at this after this is just going to be panels where people ask you questions and it's harder for you to screw up. But if you really are funny and entertaining, um, the sky's the limit and lots of speaking agents are going to want to grab you and give you school gigs, which pay well, and they don't go all year during, it means that for six weeks of the year for a start, when the schools are sequestered at the end of the year, you can write. Uh, and in between school terms, you can write full time and you won't get school gigs every day. So you'll have lots of opportunities to write. And there you go. There's a lucrative career. So anyway, I thought about this and I had just started focusing on moving away from kind of stuff that anybody could write into writing stuff that only someone as obsessed with <laughs> East Asia as me could write. So I have been, a, for seven years, I was a student of the way of the sword and I made many trips to Japan and I ended up with a real Japanese master. So like the karate kid, that kind of thing, it really happened to me, but as an adult. So my Mr. Miyagi, Fukushima sensei was the highest ranking Iaidoka samurai swordsman in Japan when he took me on as one of under his umbrella through a number of other masters. 
So I got to compete in the great Taikai in front of a Japanese prince. So I started writing books for young adults about this kind of stuff. I wanted to write about the shinobi or ninja culture, but in a way that had never been done before, where all the sword fights are completely accurate. All the folklore is real ninja folklore, like the oral traditions that were passed down. For this, I had to track down ninja descendants, which I did in Japan. I mean, I'm an ex-detective, so uh, I did it. And um, when I started writing about this, I hit the school circuit in full samurai costume wearing a sword and I did demos and I explained the real thinking of the culture very humbly as a student, not like an anthropologist saying, well, this is what the Japanese think. Now I had become part of that family and been accepted. So I had to learn to speak Japanese to do this because the real masters don't speak English. Um, but that really, from there, there was no looking back. You know, I knew I'd found my niche. This is what I was meant to do. And the Australian government was also very happy because they said, you are like a walking bridge between Australia and Asia, your attitudes and your connection to East Asia. And there's always going to be this undercurrent of discomfort that we have to deal with in certain elements of the society. And it comes from ignorance. You know, I personally believe the greatest threat to the whole human race is just that, ignorance. We turn people into the enemy. We turn them into the other because we don't understand them. And then we believe all the myths we hear about them. And, of course, elites and greedy people cash in on that. They monetize and they weaponize. And all I've got to say to really demonstrate that in a public speaking way is an impression I'm sure everyone will love, which is, a very famous person who loves to say China, 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 China. So, you know, I'm trying to be the opposite. I'm trying to be the guy who goes, let's all calm down and get to know each other because we're, we're all interesting. And, and uh, so I became an um, Australian government uh, ambassador for Asia literacy with an agenda to encourage people to understand Asian culture. And that led to a number of schools wanting my books in class sets. So entire classrooms of kids would study my work and then they'd invite me to the school. I would do martial arts. I would talk about core values and philosophies, the three pillars of East Asian culture, Confucianism, Taoism, and uh, East Asian Buddhism. And uh, it, it was very, very all-round win-win. How fun for the kids. That's just so awesome, you know, to go to school and, and be immersed like that. That's just awesome. And also so clever for you from a career strategy because that was um, an income stream and class sets, you know, this is a textbook, so to speak. Um, so let's just um, talk about your writing routine and why don't we take this book as as um as an example right um your latest novel in terms of your actual writing routine and writing process you've said that you take about three months to research a book potentially and then yeah. obviously you get into the throes of writing what does that look like as in do you aim for a certain number of hours per day or a certain word count where do you write um what do you have to do to get into the zone or do you just put your bum in the seat and start writing? Great question. Um, 
basically the pattern is when I've done the research, I've kind of become like a little mini expert on that particular subject. So I, I understand all the things that are needed to make it both adventurous and imaginative, but also realistic. Um, so I define the parameters for a start based on history, based on culture, based on research of just how far this is going to go. Um, for example, with Dragons of Dusk and Dawn, so many people who've already bought the book have asked me, they've said, please give us a spoiler. Does the Chinese character who's like a strategist, like a war master and the Viking character who's primarily a kind of a go crazy warrior, but very cunning, do they face off in the end, you know, and have a, a, a Kung Fu versus Axe and Shields type fight? And I said, I am not going to answer that, but I want you, I'm not going to give you that spoiler, but I want you to think about the nature of my writing and how much of it is Hollywood and how much of it is history. Um, in a Hollywood movie, you could guarantee that boss of the level computer game type face off at the end. And often it's disappointing. So if it's done, it's got to be done the right way. And if it's not done, sometimes what is done instead is much better. So I think through all these kind of issues and I do a kind of a basic planning chart. Now, the basic planning chart is... You mean before you even start writing? Before I even start mm -hmm. writing, yeah. Um, it's kind of, I block out in almost like a graphic novel. I kind of draw squares, each one representing a chapter. And I estimate maybe 12 or 13 or 15 chapters. And I write notes of the kind of the big things I want to see happen in each. So that enables me to plan pinch points and twists. I always like to start every chapter with either a twist or a reversal of fortune, because that's really where drama comes from. I learned that from really immersing myself in Shakespeare. Um, you know, Shakespeare is just the master of just ripping you out of the middle of a philosophical discourse into a, oh my God, and somebody's gone mad or the dead or the jumping from the castle walls or whatever. Um, or you've been betrayed, or so on. Then it enables me to also put in foreshadowings and payoffs. And I need that overview. I need that kind of eagle's view looking down on the book as it will emerge to plan here, this character says this, and then we're going to see what happens many chapters later where the reader is going to go, ah, that's why he said that. So, I do all that, and that is pretty conventional experienced craft work. But then here comes another twist. As I write the first draft, I follow Stephen King's advice, which is write the first draft with joy, with passion, with a certain amount of abandon. So I follow my mission map. I follow my parameters. But as I'm working with the characters, they start to come alive. And as they start to come alive for me, they often hijack my intentions. They often hijack the story. And I almost have this internal thing going on between me and them, like uh, Einar, or as we would say in the West, Einar, the chief Viking character, almost, you know, kind of turning from the page and looking at me and going, I wouldn't have done that. And I'm like, no, this is, you know, I, I'm the God of this world. You will, and he's like, no, outsider. That is not what my people would have wanted me to do. And, and so I, this oh all goes and, and by the time it's over, I've been true to the story, true to the characters. And um, 
Then when I come back, I rewrite the whole book twice. And those are polishing and looking for errors, looking for either tiny errors of fact, like in Dragons of Dusk and Dawn, I have a, a rogue Viking captain who disobeys the raid chief and goes off and causes trouble, has to be dealt with as a mutineer. I mentioned at one point that his flag has three bloodied swords on it. That's his emblem befitting his personality. On my second reading, I found that when I'd mentioned that later, it was two swords. So that's a tiny but very serious for me, critical factual error. So I correct lots of things like that. And I also, again, now that I know the characters much better, I've, I've been living with them for a while, I let them tweak their own dialogue and tweak their own anecdotes and, and metaphors and similes true to their character. The third rewrite is really just pure polish for the rhythm of the sentences and the way things sound when they're read aloud and how exciting each scene feels. And if I feel I need to speed up some of the action or slow down something. And then of course it goes to the publisher and then that's the fourth rewrite when the publisher, oh, sorry, in between going to the publisher, I get it edited by my choice of editor. So this is something that a lot of people don't realize you can do. If you know a good editor who is absolutely proven and, and the one I work with is a legend, um, I'm speaking of Leonie Tile, who was a publisher for Random House and Woolshed Press and University of Queensland Press. What she does not know about editing fiction is not known. And uh, she's, she's very gracious and she's also gentle. Um, so she doesn't put notes in the column like I have had in the past from people who were out to prove themselves, like a red line through something saying this is just crap. Um, you know, writers don't really appreciate that from an editor. I know, I know they're trying to be tough and tough is supposed to be cool, but please, you know, we're all craftspeople. Let's, let's be, let's be gracious. Leonie's wonderful. So then Leonie edits it and she does primarily a structural edit where she can see things that I can't see because I'm too close to the work. The way I try to remedy being too close to the work. And again, I advocate this for anyone writing regardless of your level of experience, because I've bounced this off writer pals of mine who have put out even more books than me, and they, they say that they totally agree. Once you've done a draft, walk away for a while, go and do something else, lock your brain space onto something different. Deliberately don't think about the book, absorb yourself elsewhere, and then when you come back, you get a freshness. And a, and a fresh perspective shift. So I do this between each draft. Now, I have to admit, and this may create a little bit of envy, <clears throat> because I had to touch type in the police force, writing long witness statements and stuff. Even when I started writing, I, I typed very fast. So I can bash out a first draft in two weeks of the whole No. Book. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my I can. God. No. Yeah. <gasps> Oh, my God, that's that obviously after the, you've done that that storyboarding with the planning, right? Yeah, absolutely. After the research, after the storyboarding, I can sit down and, you know, my wife, who is a, a professional animator, she has a master's degree from RMIT in Melbourne in creative arts. Most of her fellow class members are now working for Marvel, doing all the after effects in superhero movies, which we all admire so much as being so realistic. 
she runs an animation company here in China, a very successful one. So I negotiate with her and I say, look, sweetie, I've got this book. I got it. It's burning inside me. I need to take every afternoon off for two weeks. Um, and I'll see you in the mornings, evenings, weekends, and the rest of the time I'm, I'm a phantom. <laughs> so I will have lunch and then I will write from just after midday. And it's very quiet in China at that time because everyone's having the siesta, the wuxia. They're all, they're all in this kind of coma for two hours. It's, a, it's ancient tradition. So I will write sometimes till five or six o'clock and I have no concept of the passage of time. You know, I have, a, I have a cup of coffee and a glass of water and I'm just, and it just pours out. And after two weeks, there's the first draft done. Now, when I walk away and come back and do the other drafts, I have to slow down. I have to drag my, you know, put an anchor on myself and go more slowly because I really want to get it right. And then after that final Leone tile edit, then it goes to the publisher. And the publisher, of course, has their own views, which I really appreciate. And, and I guess another piece, a little piece of advice is if you're writing for yourself, just enjoy it, just in be self-indulgent. Or you're writing for your family or, or a close-knit circle of friends or fellow writers who write for each other enjoy and and just accept whatever they say and flow along and if they're all happy with it enjoy more but if you're writing for the public commercially embrace every criticism you get as an opportunity for perfection embrace it if you feel a bit emotionally jarred or even hurt by it that's good just get to know that feeling work with it observe it self-observe and then go away and when the feeling of agony passes consider the advice never send a book to a fellow writer who you know for a fact envies you send your book for feedback to people who respect you and really want to help you and if that's the criteria they can be as tough as you allow them to be and that tough will be really helpful and if you if you find someone in your life if you find a mentor figure or you find an advisor who's respectful, but also a very strong and knowledgeable advisor, that is a gift. That mm. is a precious gift. That will save you years of developing by simply writing and failing, writing and half succeeding, writing and succeeding, then writing and failing again and wondering why did I fail when the last one succeeded? And when I say fail, I don't mean necessarily sales. Because again, to invoke the history of great world literature most of the greats who we study when we study world literature across history did not know commercial success in their own lifetime some of them remained unknown until well after their lifetime mm. but what i mean by success is when you come back to that work six months after it's been published and you read it and you are able to look yourself in the eye, in the mirror and say, I wrote a damn fine book. That is a good piece of work. I respect it. I respect myself for doing it. You know, it's a bit like the secret of love. If you, if you want to love somebody else and be loved, the first person you've got to learn to love is yourself. I don't mean self-indulgence or narcissism. We all have a little bit of that, but I mean self-respect and appreciation for a job well done and loyalty to that individual who deserves it that's essential otherwise you can't you can't have a healthy relationship with somebody else 
I have to know why do you do you want to do the first draft in such an intensive two week period as opposed to maybe take your time a bit? <laughs> That's a very fair question. Um, to be honest, it's excitement because while I'm researching and while I'm storyboarding, the energy is building up inside of me, the energy about the book, the excitement, and I'm already seeing scenes from the book like a movie running in my head. You know, one of, one of the biggest, I think, writing secrets is you are not a, really a writer. Don't think about the once upon a time kind of model like when we're telling little kids stories. You are a director of a movie that hasn't been made yet. And your challenge is to run that movie in your head and then report on the page what you see. If you do that, your work will be mostly show, don't tell, and your work will be immediate and you won't be getting into it. You won't be bleeding into it, your authorial presence. There won't be any sense of who the writer is. Are they young? Are they old? Are they male? Are they female? Are they from this culture or that culture? It won't be there. You will genuinely be that omnipresent authorial voice. Uh, you know, it's like uh, if we go right back to the beginning of great storytelling and we look at, you know, epic, you know, poetry, Homer. We know, you know, who, who gave us, well, if there was a Homer who gave us the Iliad and the Odyssey, we know nothing about Homer. We only know rumors. He was blind. He was a scribe. Well, we, we cannot from the text identify anything about the storyteller. And I think that's part of the universality of his work. It's all about the characters. It's all about the setting. From the archaeology, we can tell he wasn't writing in the age that the stories are set in because some of the war technology had changed. That's all we know. So if you want to really engage the reader, I think you have to be invisible. Um, you know, unless you're writing in the first person, in which case it's an acting mission. You have to become your characters. You have to utterly become them. And, and you know, if you, if you are a highly imaginative person generating those theta waves, beware, um, because some of the finest actors in the world stay in character on set, even when they're not filming. And, and some of them have even reported going slightly mad doing this and, and, upsetting their family because they go home as the character. They can't help it while they're making the movie. Writers can be like that too. But it does produce great work. It produces utterly convincing work. Mm. I could talk to you for hours, Simon, but um, we're almost the, at the end of this episode. So I would love to leave with your top three writing tips for people who are emerging they they are at the start of their writing journey uh, and they'd love to be in a position where you are one day. Okay. So uh, top three tips. So first of all, let's talk about craft. Um, it's a big temptation when you're emerging. You really want to be recognised. You want to be published. You want to prove yourself. So it's a big temptation to write other people's stuff. It's fine to sit down and read. Let's say you want to write fantasy. Read all of J.K. Rowling's stuff. Read all of, you know, um, George R.R. R. Martin's stuff. Read all of Tolkien's stuff. You know, all of these writers are identifiable because they have, you know, a double, a double syllable kind of, you know, capital <laughs> name in there. That tells you they're a good fantasy writer, I guess. 
those three are giants in their field, modern and, and days gone by. Yes, read them. And don't be afraid of kind of adopting their voice to some extent. But make sure you're doing this because you love this kind of fantasy. So write what you love, write what you can keep on doing, write what excites you and speaks to you. Don't be tempted. You know, I've, had, I've met a lot of young writers who say, I really want a big following, so I'm going to try and write like Matthew Riley. Now, you know, Matthew's a personal friend of mine, and Matthew has told me he will never try to write like somebody else. He can't. It doesn't turn him on, so he doesn't have the energy to do it. But when he's writing as Matthew Riley, and, and he does write a few different flavors as Matthew Riley, he's got boundless energy. That's his greatest secret. He's just a workaholic. And, and uh, tip number two, don't be impatient, even though you get excited. When you get excited, learn to channel your excitement into the right phases in your craft work. But don't submit it too early because that's the difference between losing or winning a first impression if you submit to a publisher and they think wow you know this person has talent but this is half-baked they should have rewritten it again they should have gone over it and picked out all the little tiny errors or i could have kept going i could have read the whole manuscript not just the sample they're not going to tell you that they're too busy some of them get two and a half thousand submissions a week I know for a fact, and this is a shocking thing to tell you, I know a publisher, I'm not going to say who, they're out of the game now, but they were a big name publisher. She told me in a moment of raw honesty, she said one month, we got so many submissions, we brought in the support staff from the publishing house and we handed out manuscripts to everybody and we told them, read the introductory blurb, read the first page, you've all got one minute, and then you have to go either shortlist or in the waste paper bin. That's frightening. One minute. <laughs> one minute. So craft it, craft it, be patient, fight yourself. Fight yourself in that way, but go with the excited energy when you're working. Tip number three, the game has become much more complex now than it was when I started. I'm a dinosaur. I started writing in a different century and publishing was very different. I pitched a lot of ideas about the internet to uh, publishers and they weren't interested at the time. One publisher said to me, you talk like David Bowie. He's always on about the internet being the future. I'm there. Well, I'm in good company then. The guy's a genius and, uh, you know, rest his soul. But the point here is, now it's more complex. It's not just you can get published by submitting to existing publishers. There are corporate publishers, big publishing houses. There are middle presses, some of which are run by authors who are doing the Virginia Woolf thing. They're frustrated that they're too far ahead of their time. So they, they create their own press so they can actually get their work out there. And what the critics say about their work validates that decision, just like Virginia Woolf. Her husband was her publisher. She was way too radical for conventional publishers. If he hadn't stood by her, we wouldn't know about her. But now everybody loves, you know, the genius behind that tragic gift. So now you can also go to boutique presses like the one I've just published my latest work with, Undo Redo Press. Big shout out to them. They're fabulous people. 
They're Sydney-based, they're young, they're dynamic, they're hardworking, and they're into all of the complicated aspect of marketing books these days. You know, pixel and, uh, you know, responsive marketing and, uh, you know, A-B reactions to different things and uh, all of this complex stuff, algorithms. I hate to say it, but if you're going to be a writer and you're going to do it either as a major stream of income or all of your income, you really need to study all of this stuff and you need to consider how you're going to break into publishing. It's not just the way I did it, which was I was fortunate. I was blessed. I got a big break with a big publisher. So after that, everybody took me seriously. They thought, well, why would Random House publish him if he can't write? That presumption is always going to be there, you know, till they burn my ashes and scatter them on the sacred mountain above Guilin here in China. But um Nowadays, you can start off literally self-published, manipulating the internet to your benefit, get recognition, and have a publisher, a big publisher, come to you and say, do you want to do your next book in a different model? And you can do it all. I am still published with Random House, very happily with the Moonshadow books. And there's a, a trilogy about the Shinobi published all over the world through them. In, in different subsidiary territories, including in the United States and in German and, and so on, Indonesia. And, and I'm very happy to leave that in place. I'm also published with a middle-sized press or small press from uh, Armadale, Christmas Press, Eagle Books with one of my Tomodachi books. Um, and I'm very happy now to take my backlist, which I didn't feel like some of it was really doing anything so I politely retrieved the rights from corporate publishers and I've given it to Undo Redo Press. And they're going to do great things with it. I just know they are. And um, readers, a, a whole new generation is going to get Dr. Id and the stuff we talked about earlier. They're going to get it refreshed and reframed and get to enjoy it. And um, this flexible thinking, you know, again, to borrow a quote from a, a, an Asian identity, Bruce Lee, be like water, my friend. You know, water is very soft, but it can gradually undo stone. And getting through that wall into publishing, it's like attacking the Great Wall. It's like trying to get through a stone wall at first. And it can feel that way. You can have a lot of dark nights of the soul when you've written great stuff and just nobody seems to want to give you a break. So look at all the different ways the industry works now take heart and keep changing your approach. Try different things. Sooner or later, you're going to drive a wedge into that crack and the dripping water is going to get through it and wear it down. And once you get that first break, believe me, it becomes easier and easier. Nobody says to you, who are you? Or why should I publish you anymore? Then it's just a question of the right book at the right time. Or you creating an environment where you can publish anything you want. And, you know, I know a lot of great writers who have really done this. Uh, I think of people like Cameron Trost, who's from Australia. He lives in France now, in Brittany. He created uh, Black Beacon Books, which is all about a particular style of mystery and crime that nobody seemed to be interested in. So he created his own publishing house, wrote his own books. He has a massive following because it turns out he was sensitive to a nerve that hadn't been struck. For some writers, maybe that's the way you have to go. But now I would venture to say Cameron 
can easily field approaches from you know big publishing houses and say yes or no on his own terms. That's how it works. It works the same actually with acting and with short films, independent movies. That's how a lot of Australian actors have broken into the big market. So um, yeah, final bit of advice for, for emerging um, writers. Look, what we do looks very gentle. You know, we type, we talk, we crack jokes, you know, we sing, we dance, we steal things to borrow a Jason Mraz album title. But it's a tough game. And I'm not saying that to discourage you. I'm saying simply be realistic. If you don't set the bar to crazy high and you don't expect instant results and you are methodical and scientific and tactical, strategic and calm when you need to be, and emotional and overjoyed and excited and full of energy when you need to be, you will make it. Because it's not like winning the lottery. There are people who say to you, getting published, getting really published is as difficult as being hit by a meteorite or winning the lottery. Nonsense. Mm, that nonsense. is absolute nonsense. One is a matter of, you know, really unusual random chance with a, a terrible, you know, number of zeros in front of the statistical odds against. The other is a science, a craft, an art, and a science, and you can get there. So mm. hang in there. That's what I say. Hang in there. Keep going. Wonderful. Such great advice. I love it. I love the strategy behind the way you think, your energy, and all your advice on creativity. So thank you so much for your time today, Simon. Uh, it's been my honour. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Simon Higgins. He's had so much experience and um, very, very sage advice. And since we have been talking about China, I have a fun fact for you before I leave you. In written Chinese, which is a writing logographic system, meaning that each symbol represents a word rather than, you know, like having letters that each represent a sound, there's actually no universally accepted method of filing or indexing. Like in English and most languages, we organize documents or books in alphabetical order, right? Because we only have a finite number of symbols. Like in English, we have 26 letters. But in Chinese, there are thousands and thousands of symbols. The most common way to sort words is by how many strokes there are in the characters. But there are four other standard ways of sorting words. And different dictionaries might use different methods. Until recently, this could cause problems in organisations where the filing system might be known to only one or two people. If the filing clerk or secretary left, the whole system would fall apart. These days, however, you can just use search, you know, like computers, right, for documents. Still, as someone who loves a good filing system, I am very thankful for English alphabetical order. I don't know if I could cope if I was um, in charge of filing with Chinese characters. All right, we've come to the end of this week's episode. Do connect with the uh, listener community, the broader listener community on Facebook if you haven't already. Just search on Facebook for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join the group. We'd love to have you in there. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And of course, you can find out more about any 
any of uh, our courses at the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.